Look in your Bible at 1 John chapter 2. Let me read that classic statement there that John gives to us beginning at verse 15. Where John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What a classic, classic New Testament passage. In fact, I would have to say it's probably one of the most significant passages, I believe, in all of the New Testament in terms of what it calls us to. If you've been in Christ for any amount of time, you've seen this passage. In fact, many of you might be able to come up and recite it. This is just a a refrain that we've heard. If you've been in Christ any amount of time, to not love the world or the things in the world. I mean, certainly none of us in here would want to ever be accused of that. Certainly, because we love Christ, we would never, never desire to love after the things in the world. We certainly, if you're a parent, would never want your child to be defined as worldly or they've gone the way of the world. Or I'm thinking of that statement in 2 Timothy where a follower of Christ and of Paul, for many years a close companion, his name was Demas, and it said, For Demas, having left, loved this present world, has departed or deserted from us. I mean, none of us would want that. If you're a grandparent and you're praying both for your children and your grandchildren, you would certainly not want them to love the world. And Because if you love the world, verse 15, the love of the Father is not in Him. So this is a very important passage. I've been uh, just studying for a couple of weeks as I was there trying to care for my father a little bit and my mom. I'd go back and study, 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 then care for them and study, study, study. So we're going to open it up today on what this passage means, but I just kept writing and kept writing and kept writing, and this certainly is going to be two weeks, and it could be three weeks in its scope, but I want to begin to introduce it, and this morning is very, very important. I think I would probably tell you that I'm going to be a bit more technical today and then a bit more directional with you in the next week or in the next two weeks. I want you to really understand what John means when he said, do not love the world. So I'm riding in the boat with my sister this week at Lake Powell, and her daughter's out there on um, the wakeboard, and she's got like a little, little color stripe down her hair. And I leaned over, different than her normal color, and I leaned over to my sister and said, does that mean she loves the world? (laughs) And I was just kind of joking with her a little bit. And we begin to talk, and I begin to tell her what I was teaching on and what I was studying. And it's important. I mean, what constitutes loving the world? How do you know if you love it? And what are the elements of the world? Now, let me, as we begin, tie this passage in verse 15 and 17 to the previous section. 
Do you remember where we were just a few weeks back when John said in 12, I'm writing to you little children. He said in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers. He said also in verse 13 that I'm writing to you young men. And so he writes to the children, he writes to the fathers, he writes to the young men. And remember there that he wrote, did John, to assure them and to encourage these believers that they are indeed are in fellowship with God. In fact, it would be at that point here in 12 through 14 that John just pauses to assure those who are reading this epistle that those hard-hitting statements that he had just made, if you will, are not directed against them. He has been writing, if you will, to them, not about them. He's addressing us as genuine believers who possess a saving knowledge of Christ. And his purpose, at least in that last passage, was not to shake our assurance of salvation. Actually, he wrote to encourage the confidence of our salvation. And you remember as he wrote that section in 12 through 14, he provided three powerful reminders to encourage the assurance of our salvation to all believers. He said, number one, remember your sins are forgiven. And remember he said, he's writing to the whole church. And though he addressed children, that was addressed to believers. We sought to be very clear there. He said, your sins are forgiven. Then he says to those who are fathers, and I believe representing not so much a stage of maturity, but those who have been in Christ a long time. He says, you know God, secondly. And then he wrote to the young men, but encapsulating everyone, he says to the young men, you have overcome the evil one. So he wrote, did he not, to assure us. He says to you by the Spirit of God, even this morning, your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. He would say to you this morning, you know the Father. In other words, you have a relationship with Him and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there would be a truth there that He writes to the young men because you have already overcome the evil one. Now, it's fascinating to me that that last reminder to the young men was their position as overcomers. They indeed had already overcome the evil one because, John says, you are strong. And he says, because the word of God abides in you. And so here he was giving us reason to rejoice because Jesus Christ, it says in John 16, has overcome the world. And by relationship to him and by faith in him, we have also conquered the world. In fact, look over at 1 John 5, 4. Just glance there for a second. Remember, we talked on that. For everyone in 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God, there's that position, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, we belong to Jesus and as such, by way of our fellowship with him, we have already overcome the world. But now as you look back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he's going to warn us of the dangers ahead in the sinful world in which we live in. And here is for us a warning to be careful of spiritual demise. And spiritual demise would mean loving the world. And so we have a wonderful promise, if you will, in 12 through 14, 
And it is backed by an exhortation in 15 through 17 to remain faithful. Or if I looked at it another way, there are affirmations in 12 through 14, and it is followed by a warning that we do not live in duplicity with a heart that is saturated in the world. So what John seems to be doing here is communicating this, is that victory in the world is already assured. But he's saying to you this morning and to me that resistance is required. And so if you will, he captures, if I'd like to say it, the essence of the good news in 12 through 14, but then he tells us as those who have that good news, that here is what is required to those who have received it. And so we need to be reminded of our glorious salvation and yet also be warned against the very thing that would steal our joy, namely loving the world. I kind of look at it like Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, where he says, if you think you stand, take heed lest you, what? Fall. And so we are in Christ Our sins are forgiven. We know the Father. We've overcome the evil one by our faith in Christ. But here's a warning to us. And so we have a wonderful, wonderful inheritance. And yet the battle is not over. So John declares, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so he's going to encourage us to press forward in our faith with a life that is transformed while we live in a sin-saturated world. Now, what he's going to do, and we're going to look at this week, maybe a couple weeks, he's going to lay down one huge command, okay? One huge command, do not love the world. And then he's going to back up that command, and he's going to bolster that command with what I would call just two incentives to follow. So there's one huge command, and then there's two strong incentives that come behind the huge command. And so it's kind of unique for me. I I don't think John is so much trying to hammer you or hammer us as much as he's trying to give us one overarching command, do not love the world, and then he's backing it up, giving you the incentives as to why you should not love the world. And the first thing he's going to say on that incentive, and we'll get to that, is that the world is incompatible with our love for God. Look at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look at the end of verse 16. All those things, the lust there, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he's going to say, number one, that the world is incompatible with the love of God. But then secondly, the second incentive is he's going to tell us that the world is in opposition with eternity. Look at verse 17. He says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that's where we're going to go, and I'll probably be much more applicational when we get to those two incentives. But it's imperative that we understand first here, if you're taking notes, the command that is given to believers. And, and, and again, as I say the command given to the believers, I be, obviously this is the word of God. Obviously, when this came off under the inspiration of God, breathed into the Apostle John, and he wrote it on parchment, I believe it's as fresh today as it was when John wrote it. 
It's as fresh today as when God inspired it. And so look at it this way. There's a command here given to you. In other words, this is a word of God to us this morning as a church. Now, the command's not hard to see. Look at it in verse 15. John just comes out and says it. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. We call it a, a command because it is a command in the language. It's a strong command. In fact, if you, to be technical with it, do not love the world is a present tense imperative command. In other words, you're not to love the world in which we live. And in the language, it can imply, I don't think it always does, but it can imply that there's an action in progress that needs to be stopped. And so John, after affirming our position, comes and gives us a command from the Word of God that you are not to love the world, okay? Now, you and I both know that we're not to remove ourselves from the world and become monks, but I think it's interesting because in chapter 2, remember in 7 through 11, we are to love believers, right? And we are to love God. That is to be commended. But when we come here to 2.15, we are not to love the world. That is to be condemned, Whereas the love of God in the previous passage in chapter 2 and the love for one another is focused on God and other people, here this love for the world is focused on the pleasure that one hopes to receive, okay? Now, obviously, it's going to be understood that the love of God and the love of the world, the love of the Father, are mutually exclusive. If we pursue the world with its passion, then the love of the Father is not in us. Now let's just talk about that just for a moment. You see it in verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. There are people who just wonder, how are we, you ever wondered this, commanded to not love the world when it says of Jesus Christ and when it says of God that God so loved the what? The world. And so how, what's John talking about here? On the one hand, he gives us this strong command to not love the world. But when you go over to John 3, 16, it said, for God so loved the world. And if God loved the world, then why is the believer not to love the world? You see, it's very important that we define our key terms here. If you just glance in your Bible again at verse 15 through 17, the key word there in the language is the word, is the word cosmos. And you can say, see that in just three different verses, six different times, John is addressing the world. Look at it again in 15. He said, do not love the world, cosmos, or the things in the world, a second time. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, a third time. He says at the end of 16, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and then he says there in verse 17, and the world is passing away. So that's key to understand that word cosmos six different times in three verses. Now the question here for us is, what is the world? Okay, And it's very important that we properly understand this concept. Because if we don't, it can lead to legalism. Okay, It can lead to legalism. 
And that word world there has a wide range of meanings in the New Testament, and it does even here in 1 John. So how are we to understand what the world is and what we're not to love? Let me just, there's at least three concepts of the world in Scripture, and this is important for us to understand. Number one, I would say, under this command, the world can speak of the world of creation in which we live, okay? You're going to see at various places in the Scripture where the Scripture talks about the world. And when it talks about the world, we just simply have to recognize that in some places, in some context, in some passages, the world speaks of the creation in which we live. For example, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 17, 24, there the writer said, God made the world in which we live. So when he talks about God made the world, he's talking about the creation itself. He's talking about the world in which we live. Sometimes in the scripture, that word for world just speaks of the created world. It speaks of the physical world. In fact, in the early history of the Greek language, that word cosmos actually just meant ornaments. In fact, we get our English term cosmetic from it. Cosmos, cosmetic. And from this word, it just meant that which was well-constructed or well-ordered or beautiful. So sometimes when you see that word, world, it just speaks of the physical world. In fact, the psalmist said this in 24.1. He said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So there the psalmist is just talking about the creation itself. Certainly, do you not remember in, uh, you remember certainly in Psalm 19, when he opens there and he's talking about the revelation of God, you can finish the statement, the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. In other words, the world in which God made are, is declaring the glory of God. I mean, is it not true, according to the scripture, that after God in Genesis chapter 1 created the world, he said, behold, it is very, what? Good. And so you have to understand, sometimes this word, world, is used in the scripture. And I want you to know that you can love the world that God made. The world that God made, it came from him. This last week, I was out at Lake Powell. And if you've ever been to Lake Powell, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just, you're out there, and my brother-in-law has this jet ski, and I'm riding around on this jet ski in between these high canyons, this red rock. Uh, some places of the, the lake go, I don't know, 600 feet down in terms of water. You're just kind of sometimes sitting there at Lake Powell, awestruck at the sunsets, at the water, at the rock formation. We saw a rainbow on the way home. Listen, you ought to praise God when you see that, right? So you have to understand, when, when, when John talks about not loving the world, listen, he's not talking about the creation. 
He's not talking about the mountains. He's not talking about the rivers. He's not talking about the lakes. He's not talking about the moon. He's not talking about when I went to sleep on top of that houseboat at night and looked up and saw the stars. I mean, most certainly John's not saying, hey, don't love the world in which you live. In fact, it'd be the opposite. The heavens are declaring what? The glory of God. You ought to rejoice in it. You ought to love it. You, and so that's not what he's talking about. Okay, But secondly, there's another way the world was used in the Scripture. And it's so important that you understand this before we can get to the implication. Okay, But secondly, sometimes the world, cosmos, as mentioned not in John but in other places in the Scripture, it just speaks of the human race. Okay? speaks of the human race. When John says in his gospel, for God so loved the world, he's talking about the human race there, okay? This is the world, the human race that God loved. And so I want to make sure that I'm clear with you. God is not saying don't love the people in the world because God so loved the human race. God so loved the people who were in, the, in this world. In fact, the world as a human race is the object of God's saving purpose. In fact, look, you remember we already touched on it. Look at 1 John 2, 2. In this light, he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole, what? World. You ought to love the people that are in the world. I just got off the phone last night with a very good friend who just spent some time in the Czech Republic. Man, he was so jacked up. He went over there to lead a, a young people's camp. They did a camp, about 40 basically almost unbelievers. He said in the course of this week at this high school camp that's connected to a local church, eight young people trusted Christ. He says, Scott, I just love these kids already. He's in a small group with them, and he's talking with five boys, and he said four of them were atheists because that's how they were taught in the Czech Republic. My friend got back. Listen, he should love those people, shouldn't he? he? We should have a heart for those people who are without the gospel. We have a lot of workers here on farms and ranches. Certainly John's not talking about not loving those people, is he? God so loved the world. God so loved the human race. He's not the propitiation just for your sins, but he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world is the thought. In fact, just look over in 1 John chapter 4. Is this not true right there? Where it says in 1 John 4, 14, and in this second category, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son, this phrase, 4, 14, to be the savior of the what? Of the world. What, what world? The human race in which we live. We are to love those people. Look at 1 John 4, 9. In this is the love of God, that it was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. He sent it into the human race, if you will. And you have other statements in Scripture like this, do you not? Remember in John, certainly, 129. Remember when Jesus Christ first laid his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? 
of the world. It's just an expression to speak of the human race. Now, I want to be clear here. The world here in this second category refers to the human race as a whole. It doesn't refer to every individual or else those verses we just read would lead to universalism. And we don't believe that. You have to trust in Christ. So when it says that God so loved the world, he's speaking as a race, not necessarily every individual in it, but he loves the world. And so when John says to not love the world, this is not a reference to the human race that has been ordained by God. Say, okay, well, Scott, what does it mean? Here's the third category. He's not speaking about the creation. He's not speaking about loving the human race. The predominant use of world, as you probably understand it, is the world, the cosmos, that is under the influence of evil. In other words, when you see this phrase in 1 John 2.15, it has an ethical dimension to it. When you see that phrase and when we have that command in 15 to not love the world, the world here is a spiritual system of evil. It is a system, what John is talking about, that is contrary to God. That's the word and that's the the text here. It is a world in rebellion to God. It is a system of evil. It is in opposition to God and opposition to Christ. It is altogether independent of Christ. It It is to rival God is what the world does in this passage. It is a world that is always alienated from God, that is opposed to God. It is a world in this sense that is steeped in sin and dominated by the evil one. In fact, look over at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. Remember there in that classic statement where he says, we know that we are from God, 519, and the whole world in this context lies in the power of the evil one. And so here it's used in that category in 1 John. It is an evil order, okay? It is contrary to God. It is Satan's system that opposes Christ, that opposes God. It is an evil system that you might call it anti-God. You can call it anti-Christ even in the book of First John. Now, the world is said to be under the dominion of Satan. In fact, let me just show you this. Look over in John chapter 13. And again, I know I'm being somewhat technical, but I don't want to just rush into this in the weeks to come without this understanding. Remember John, the same writer, writing in his gospel in John 13. It's in this way that he uses it both in John 13 as well as 1 John 2. Remember it says this in 13, um, excuse me, go back to chapter 12, chapter 12 in verse 31, where Jesus said, this is the judgment of this world. And then he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There very clearly Satan is described as the ruler of this world. Look over at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. He writes something very similar there. He says, I will no longer talk in 1430 much with you for the ruler 
of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. And the same is used, look over in John chapter 16, verse 11, where it says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict, 1611, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so here, back in 1 John, it says that the whole world, in that third sense, is under the control of the evil one. He owns it. He controls it, if you will. He, he holds it, the thought is. And again, John's not talking about the creation. He's not talking about the human race. John here is writing about this evil system. In fact, in Ephesians 6.11, the demons are working in this world. So the, the, sin, the, the world includes what, what I would say just sinful man's thoughts. It's, it's sinful man's attitudes, his judgments, his desires, and the influences that are opposed to God. And so the world, if you will, represents fallen man that is opposed to God. Sometimes we'll use that phrase, we live in a pagan society. That's the thought. We live in a pagan world. The creation isn't pagan. The people that are created in the image of God aren't pagan. But we live in a philosophy. And, and John will talk about this next week when he talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. So the world then is a comprehensive term for all those who are in the domain of darkness and who have not been born again. So the world and the body of believers, look back in 1 John now, are in complete contrast to one another. I mean, when you think about us who are in fellowship with God and the world, they're utterly contrasted. One is under the domination or the dominion of Satan. The other is born of God. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, where he says there, and just, again, I think you're going to grasp this. 3.13 of 1 John. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, what? Hates you. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the system. He's talking about the organization. He's talking about the sinful attitudes. He's talking about everything that is opposed to God. And so he would say to you, 1 John 3, 13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. In fact, look at it again in 1 John 5, 19. He says there, regarding our place, we know we are from God. That's our ontology, if you will. But he says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so the world is under the satanic system that will be described. But look back at 1 John 3.1. Just giving you a sense of this. 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so he's talking about that organization again of evil. Look over at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, he says in verse 4, little children, you are from God. And he's beginning our speaking to our position. You've overcome them. For he that is in you is greater than he that is in the 
world. Not so much the world of creation, not the world of the human race, but he that is in you is greater than the one who is in the system of evil. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. We, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And so the world, again, is that organization, that system, and we'll look at it next week, that's, that's quantified on lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In fact, look just for one moment. Go back to the Gospel of John. Let me just show you this. I, because his, he, he reiterates themes here in 1 John as well as the Gospel of John. But do you remember this passage in 1 John, or excuse me, John's Gospel, chapter 15? Right after the section of I am the true vine, you are the branches, and so forth. But he says this in 1518, does Jesus. If, 1518, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, in other words, we've been called out of it, but I chose you, what does he say, out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's in opposition to God. Look over at John chapter 17. John chapter 17, very clearly there. Remember this in the high priestly prayer, 1714 of the gospel of John, where Jesus is praying. He says, I have given them your word. Interesting. And the world, there's that system, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I like this phrase. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, the system, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so do you see all those places where cosmos is used? And I just think it's important that we understand the distinction, and I think you do, that when John says don't love the world, he's talking about the evil system in which we lived. In fact, Paul used it this way. It's many places. Remember when he was talking about, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then he says, in which you formerly walked, and then he said this in Ephesians 2 too, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world. In other words, before you came to Christ, you were caught up in that worldly system. Of course, you certainly remember when Paul exhorted us in Romans 12, 2, when he said, do not be conformed to this, what? World, right? You know, don't let the world system squeeze you into its mold, squeeze you into its system, squeeze you into its thoughts. I, I like this, this description of the world. It was given by a, a man in his commentary, Richard Wolff. He said this, the world, speaking of it in this third category, is human nature sacrificing the spiritual to the material. The future to the present, the unseen and the eternal to that which touches the senses and perishes with time. 
He, and then he goes on to say the world is a mighty flood of thoughts, feelings, principles of action which have been around for ages, impregnating it, impelling it, molding it, and degrading it. So understand, as you look now, turn back to 1 John chapter 2. In the first aspect, we are to be grateful to God for creating the world. It is a gift of God to, for, given to us to enjoy. That's part of common grace that the sun rises on the good and the evil. The rain falls on the good and the evil. Praise God for that. Now, the reason this is important, you say, well, why? Is because you can get legalistic if you don't make that distinction on the first category. I was reading this last couple of weeks about a group of people called the Essenes. Okay, Maybe you've heard of them in church history. The Essenes, as a group of people refrained from intimacy with their wives during pregnancy in order to demonstrate that they did not marry for pleasure given by the world. And so they just refrained from any kind of intimacy because they figured if that was a pleasure given, then they're going to refrain from it. The only reason for intimacy is procreation. You see, if, if you're not careful... You can make the world say a lot of things, and you could become very, very legalistic. In fact, one time I was uh, preaching, and a guy came up to me, this is years back, and uh, he said to me, and he was dead serious. He, he said, hey, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I said, oh, praise the Lord. He goes, there was only one problem with the sermon. And he was, I'm standing here basically like this after the service, and he's standing right before me. I go, what, what was the problem? He goes like this. He goes, back there. And I, and I turned around, and there was nobody behind me. I said, what do you mean back there? And he pointed again. He goes, those. And I turned around, and I didn't see anybody. I go, you mean the drum set back in the corner? He goes, yeah. He goes, those are wrong. That's worldly. So it's interesting that in his mind, it wasn't a system of evil. The world represented a kind of instrument that could be used for worship. And so I just think it's important that we recognize when, when John's talking here about a world, he's talking about a system of evil, not an instrument, if you will, okay? Now listen, he's not talking about in the second aspect that believers, you are to love the people in the world. You are to evangelize the people in the world, for God loves the world. You ought to care about the people who work with you. You ought to care about the people who work for you. In fact, I, was, um, I, was, uh, I had to go down and get something at the lake, at Lake Powell, and my, I dropped my wife up off at the top, and I forgot where I was. I had to pick her up, and I had to go fix the boat, which is really funny because we're out in Lake Powell. It's like two states long. It's Part of it's in Utah, part of it's in Arizona, and we're pulling the boat out of the water, and who do we see? The Bookers. There they were. It was like finding them amongst a million people. It was really funny. And so we were doing that stuff down in the water, and I picked up my wife. She had a big smile on, my, on her face. She said, I had a wonderful opportunity to witness to somebody right here. I just said, praise the Lord. I mean, don't you, don't you just think 
When God loved the world, we're to love the people. So we're to love creation. We're to love the people in the world. But here in this third meaning, the way that John used it here, we are exhorted not to love the world. That is in rebellion and in opposition to God. Here again, that world is the evil system that is under divine judgment and under the control of Satan. We are not to love the world. In fact, as we read in John 17, God chose us out of the world. We live in it, but we're to be distinct from it. And we live in that tension. We are to be separate from the world, but we still live in it. But we're not to love it. We cannot be conformed to it. We cannot be contaminated by it. But on the other hand, we cannot escape from it. We are to remain in it, and we are to live within it without becoming like it. And so John declares, do not love the world. Now look again at the text in verse 15. I do want to make this distinction here. He says, do not love the world. And you see this little phrase, or the things in the world. And you say, what does that mean? Why does he say that? Why didn't he not just say, do not love the world and leave it? And if anyone loves the world, love the Father. But he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now certainly the things in the world will include the next verse, the, it can include the lust of possessions. But I want you to understand at the same time, when he says do not love the world or the things in the world, it's not restricted to possessions alone. I mean, you well know that a person can be without possessions, okay? He could be without them and just as materialistic as the person who has them, Right? In fact, I would even say, conversely, a very wealthy person can actually be free from a spirit of worldliness, while the person who goes without may be more worldly than the person who has. So you have to understand, I don't think John's talking about possessions alone. He's talking about loving the world, a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now, the question remains this morning is, why are we commanded to not love the world? Why? I mean, he tells us not to, but why? And now follow these two incentives on why we are commanded to not love the world. And the first incentive is this, that the world is incompatible with our love for God, okay? The world is incompatible with our love for God. Look at the statement in 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, in that third sense, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, it follows that the world is in opposition to God and Christ, and it can't be the object of the devotion, of devotion to the follower of Christ. He says, if anyone, look at it again, loves the world. Now, I'm going to state it again. It's in the present tense, okay? It's not saying that you have a you've struggled with materialism. That's, that's not the, the point here. He puts it in the present tense. He's describing one who continually, as a passion, as a lifestyle, as a pursuit, makes the world the object of his love. If you make the world continually the object of your love, look at verse 15. The love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if we love God, we cannot also love the world system. They are mutually exclusive. To love the world 
is to, as a practice, is to be devoid of the love of God. What's interesting with John, is it true? He's always just no, no middle ground here. It's either truth or error. It's either black or white. It's either fellowship or out of the fellowship. And you either hear in this point, love God or you love the world, but you can't do both at the same time. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when Paul's describing Satan, he said, Satan is the God of this, what, world. Do you understand that a little bit more now? God created the world, the creation. God loves the people in the world, but the world in this sentence, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when it says God is, where it says Satan is the God of this world, it means that he's manipulating it. He's controlling it. And I'm thinking of when Paul wrote about his friend Demas. So sad. Could take you to places in Colossians. There's Demas. Think about it. He's hanging with Paul. He's hanging with Dr. Luke. He's there in some of the other writings. And then all of a sudden, it says, does Paul, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me? He left Paul. You say, what do you mean he loved the world? He loved the creation? No. You mean he loved the people in the world? No. He loved the system. And so John's just saying, listen, if you're truly in fellowship with Christ, you can't love God and love the world because it's incompatible with our love for the Father. In fact, let me show you something else. Look over at James. Do you remember this? Let me just highlight this for a second. James chapter 4. And again, I'm just setting the groundwork for the weeks to come. James chapter 4. Remember when it says this? He says... Um, in James 4, let me get over there. And you've seen this phrase before. When James just so indicting, maybe he'd say it to you, where he said, you adulterous people in 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, it's interesting there. You say what? He says friendship with the world it's a very intimate word there on friendship okay it means to have an affection it's not so much a shallow understanding of what we might say well he or she is my friend here to be a friend to someone in the hellenistic world involved the the sharing of all things and here the affection is a desire for the world and james says do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. By seeking friendship with the world, they committed spiritual adultery. They allowed their love for the world to replace their affection for Christ. Look what James says in 4.4. He says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very, very interesting. You can't do both. You understand why here John says, here's the first incentive. The world is incompatible, he says, with our love for God. And I don't quite know. We can't be totally sure. But you remember the background with all the Gnostic teaching and all the false teachers of the Gnostics. Remember they taught flesh is bad, spirit is good. It could very well be that what you have here is people who were claiming to be in the fellowship with God and just discounting the body, discounting anything of the body. Only what matters is the spirit is good. And so they possibly thought God made the world. 
He's the creator of the world. We're simply enjoying what he created. Therefore, we claim fellowship but live in the world with abandonment to our desires. And they give, just gave themselves to, to sinful desires. And it may be because, as I said, the Gnostics denied the physical. They regarded oftentimes in their writing the material world as an illusion. They even said it was morally indifferent. And as such then, you can indulge in the physical desires without any accountability to God. But John just would say to us, if anyone loves the world as a passion, as a consistent pursuit, the love of the Father is not in him. So... Remember what Jesus said? You, you remember. You, you don't even have to turn there. No one can serve, what? Two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will cling to the one and hate the other. But remember Jesus said, you cannot serve God and what? Mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve both God and the world in which you live. But I just think John's just saying this to us as an incentive. I don't think he's trying to beat you up. I, he's just saying, listen, you don't want to love the world. You don't want your kids to love the world. You don't want your grandkids to love the world. You don't want them to get caught up in the world's system, in the world's entertainment, and the world's value system, and what the world says is successful. You're not from the world. You come from God. And in your heart, you want a desire to please them, but you can't do both at the same time. We used to like to say in student ministries, you can't have a foot in for the world and a foot in for God. You can't straddle the fence. In fact, uh, when we used to climb the fence, um, you'd have to be careful to not get caught on the top of the fence, right? And some people got a foot in for the world and a foot in for uh, God. He says you can't do both. He says it's incompatible with God. You, you can't say you love them and then follow after this course. But I think John's just saying, listen, you're not of the world. You, you want to make your life count. You, you want to do something for God. You who have been blessed financially, don't you want to use your money for, for purposes that extend his kingdom? I mean, don't you want to be, I'm thinking of my friend who got back from the Czech Republic and he's looking at millions of people across the, the scope of Eastern Europe. 32 million young people in Eastern Europe between ages 14 and 30, and about 1% of those know Christ. I mean, just, you just want to make your life count. He's talking to kids, and, and they're atheists because they've been taught that way. But, you know, when, when you're of the Lord, and you don't want to be of the world, you want to make your life count. I, I told the young people at River of Life a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, th there's, a, there's a place in Africa that, where they catch monkeys. And here's what they do. It's very interesting. This is true. They, the, the men in this place climb up a tree. The monkeys, as you know, if you can picture that, live in the trees. They climb in the trees. Their world is in the trees. If you've seen Tarzan, you get that, right? Okay. And uh, the men take up into the tree with them what you can call a gourd. I don't know. I just maybe for the sake of our understanding, a vase. If you men, I'm sure you've brought your wife flowers. 
you bring those flowers home, you put them in a vase. And you know how the vase works. It's got a cylinder on the top, and usually that vase kind of opens up on the bottom. So picture this. These men go into the trees in Africa, and they take this vase with them. They take a gourd with them, okay? And not only do they take this vase, it's a pretty simple operation how they get their monkeys, okay? What they do is they take it up, and then they take a rope with them. They go up in the daytime, and uh, they take this rope, and they tie the rope around the limb of this large tree. And they take the rope and tie it around the vase and the limb and, uh, the, of the tree, and there it is. They leave, then they come back down. Now, what the men have done there is they've put a prize into that vase. They've put some nuts into that vase. They just leave it in there. And so at night, the monkeys smell the prize that's in the vase. And as they're climbing in the trees, they use their hands, reach into the gourd to grab the prize, okay? They go in like this, makes sense? Then they grab the prize, and now they have a, a fist. And in the fist is the prize. Now, what the men have done in this certain place in Africa is they've made the vase just sufficiently large enough that you can put your hand into the vase free, but when you grab the prize, you can't pull it out because you're pulling against this and you can't get it out. And so these monkeys have a decision to make. They either let go of what's in their hand and slip their hand out, or as the night goes, they clench what is in their hand and clench that prize that is in their hand and pull and pull, but they, can't, they got a choice to make. You either let go and save your life or you hold on with all your life and lose your life. And they don't have enough sense. So the men, whenever they want to wake up in the morning, they wake up, they attach to themselves a billy club and just bag the monkey. Just strike them right in the skull, bag the monkey. They have what they need to sell to their people in terms of what, what, what is part of that monkey. Monkey doesn't have enough reason to let go. He just pulls and he pulls and he pulls all night and he can't get it out. And even when the men come up the tree, he still won't let go. They billy club him to death, bag their monkey, and that's how they catch him. But it reminds me, that's how some people live in our world. They're just grasping after the stuff with a clenched fist, thinking it's going to bring them joy, when in the end, it could take their life. But what a believer is to do is to let go of what's in his hand, to let go of what you have, and in losing your life, you end up what? Saving your life. But all John is saying is here, here's the command, don't love the world. Here's the incentive. It's incompatible with loving God, and the believer who loves the world can't love God at the same time. But this reminds me of that account of how some people live in our world. They live for their flesh. They live for sex. They live for money. They live for the pride of life. They live for what they can attain. They amass certain things. And I'm thinking of the guy, and we'll get there in Luke 12, who just built barns, and this is what I'll do. I'll build larger ones, and I'll tear these down. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. You finish the statement. Eat, drink, and be what? Mary. And God said to him, you fool. Luke 12, 20. You fool. Who will now own what you have prepared? And Jesus said, so is the man who lays up treasures on earth and is not rich toward God. I mean, that's our world, just grasping and holding. And Jesus said, if you really want your life, let it go and save it. But John's just saying, listen, if you're a believer, loving God and loving the world, they're in incompatible with each other. 
Just love them with all your heart. You say, well, Scott, tell me more about what that means there in lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You got to come back next week, okay? And we'll go in and we'll describe what that looks like.